blessing for the reading of the word. Amen. Thanks, John. Love never fails. Literally, that is love never falls. Strabo was a Greek geographer, born around sometime around 63 BC. And he wrote this in one of his uh, geography books about the road that ran from Athens to Corinth. He said, the road approaches so close to the rocks that in many places it passes along the edge of the precipices because the mountain situated above them is both lofty and impractical for ro impracticable for roads. Paul's audience would have been very familiar with that road, and so this image of love never falling was perfect for them. Many folks probably fell off that road, in fact. But love does not fall. Even when it seems like the ultimate fall, God dying at the hands of his creation, love didn't fall. It actually just rather caused death itself to fall. So this is a very fitting end to Paul's definition of love that we've been looking at for many weeks now. Very fitting end. It's a clear and concise capturing of everything that Paul has just said. Love is patient. Love is kind. It doesn't envy, boast. It's not proud. It doesn't dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. In a nutshell, love never fails. Furthermore, this is also a powerful opening line to Paul's closing arguments of this entire homily of his that he started back in 12 31. And we've come to expect this from Paul, I think, right? We've seen this brilliant man doing these magnificent compositions. And so here he throws out a statement that looks in both directions simultaneously. It completes his last argument, and now it begins his closing argument. For now, he's going to complete his homily by arguing love's superiority over everything else because it never goes away. Love is eternal. It never goes away. All these other things that the Corinthians prided themselves in will eventually go away, but not love. It never falls away. Now, people love to spend a lot of time on this closing argument, but I'm just going to briefly comment on it this morning. And then I want to put this entire homily of St. Paul's that we've been looking at for months now, ch chapter 13 basically, into some historical context. Because I think that historical context can really give us some great perspective as we continue to try to push into more authentic Christian living and living out our faith. Here's the interesting thing. This last section of chapter 13 has been so dissected, so analyzed. For example, there are entire books written about this. Where's that verb? So he says... If there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. So <clears throat> there's, there's two different verbs used for coming to an end. There are entire books written about that second one that's translated here, they will cease. Entire books about that one word. So this has been broken down and broken down and broken down. This is sort of a classic example of how one can not only miss the forest for the trees, but one can actually cut down all the trees while they're trying to protect one tree. It's really something to see people go at this. So, I feel Paul's point in the language and imagery he uses here is simply to elevate love above all else because of the fact that it is eternal while the rest of it is not. Nothing else, all these other things are not. Right? But folks will use this to cause division. 
and there will even be a very decided lack of love being thrown around the Christian community because people are focusing on the things that are not eternal instead of focusing on the things that are eternal. So let me just say a few things that maybe can break through some of the noise and bring the main point back into focus. And if you're not familiar with all the noise, awesome. You're in a better place than most of us. But for those of us that are familiar with the noise, you probably know what I'm talking about. So, first, each of these images. So Paul uses four. First, he uses these gifts and how they're going away. Then he uses another illustration about this knowing in part and, and, and prophesying in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. Then he has this great little parable on, on childhood and childish things. And then he uses this last illustration of seeing in a mirror dimly, which actually is really cool because Corinthians were brass manufacturers, and mirrors in those days were made out of brass. And, and Corinthians were excellent at making brass mirrors. So that's a, that's a really appropriate and very cool illustration he uses. So he uses these four images or, or, or illustrations or metaphors or parables. And every one is designed to support the argument that love should be our focus. Love should be our focus for it is for both now and the future. It is both necessary for Christian living in the church age and throughout eternity. So remember, we've talked about this a few times for those of us that have been here for most of the study in Corinthians. The major issues with some of the Corinthians centered around they thought that they had already passed from the present into the future. They thought they were living in the perfect eschatological age or the kingdom of God. And the proof that these Corinthians always turned to in their arguments was their spiritual gifts. Especially the gifts of tongues, which they really, really loved in Corinth. And their argument was very simple. We speak like angels, therefore we're angels. That was their argument. Okay? So Paul here is arguing that, listen... The gifts are wonderful, and they're necessary for the age of the church, but they shouldn't be put above love, for only love is eternal. The gifts are not. So love should direct the use of gifts, and love should be the primary pursuit of all Christians. For without love, even if we have all the gifts, without love, we are nothing at all. And that's how Paul started this brilliant homily of his, right? If we speak with the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, noisy gone, clanging symbol, if I have all these other gifts, but do not have love, I am nothing. That's how Paul starts. Okay, the second and last comment I want to make about this closing argument of Paul's is it is not in any way intended to devalue these particular gifts of the Spirit, or any gifts of the Spirit, for that matter. Consider that Paul was graced with all of these gifts. So why would he diminish them and devalue them? He wouldn't do that. And further, in the very next homily, he begins with, yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts. Okay? So it's important that these gifts are quite valuable and are specifically meant to equip the believer to endure in this age of the church. So the gifts are not gone. They are not lacking something. They are not childish but they are for now, not when the kingdom fully comes, because they will not be necessary when the kingdom comes in its completeness. Okay, Barth wrote this, because the sun rises, all lights are extinguished. That is not a commentary on the lights. That's a commentary on the sun that comes and makes the lights unnecessary. Right? Okay, so... 
Paul is not commenting on the gifts in this little argument, even though people have created doctrines out of one word in this argument. He's not commenting, I believe, on the gifts here. He is commenting on the perfection of the coming kingdom when these gifts will be unnecessary. And I believe that's what this imagery and language is all about. Fee is very good here. Fee says, Love does not eliminate the gifts in the present. Rather, love is absolutely essential to Christian life both now and forever. The gifts, on the other hand, are not forever. They are to help build up the body, but only in the present when such edification is needed. And I really appreciate an analogy that Kenneth Bailey uses. He, he reminds us that in the Middle East, a pious person is expected to wash their hands before they pray. In fact, if any of you are Homeland, Homeland fans, that show Homeland, that first, se the first season, or the second season, the first season, remember you go in his garage and he washes hands before he pray? So you, you saw that vividly. Anyway, so a pious person is expected to wash hands. However, they are allowed that if they're traveling and they don't have water, they can use sand. And they're allowed to use sand to wash their hands. But they have a proverb that goes along with that allowance. And that proverb is, when water is available, the sand washing stops. When Christ comes, all of these things he has given us in his absence will no longer be necessary. And I think that's the point of this closing argument Paul makes. So he says, pursue love. At the end of this brilliant, brilliant homily of Paul's, pursue love. Witherington has such a beautiful comment in, in uh, his book on 1 Corinthians. He says, in all these verses, Paul is talking about love in action, not mere feelings. Real Christian love does not amount to mere pious platitudes about love, but doing love, doing love. The Corinthians wanted to exalt what they knew. Remember about two years ago when we started this series on Corinthians, and I said this could be called Paul's letter to the church in America. The Corinthians wanted to exalt what they knew. Oh, that sounds so much like Christianity in America. But Paul lifts up what they should be doing for each other. Paul is asking the Corinthians to go against the grain of the social attitudes of Corinthian culture, which encourage striving for personal status and seeking to get oneself out of any position where one would have to serve others. Brody. I think Witherington could have thrown in the Americans wanted to exalt what they knew, and Paul is asking the Americans to go against the grain of the social attitudes of America. And that is a perfect segue to put this entire homily of St. Paul's into some historical context, some historical conviction. This has been a very difficult two weeks for me. Well, actually, this has been a very difficult two years for me as I've studied Corinthians and come to realize, wow, I have a long way to go to live out my Christian faith. So, I am sure there's enough here in this historical context that's going to piss everybody off. So, get ready. See, 1 Corinthians is the way we are meant to live. This is the way, as Christians, we should be living. This was not Paul's gift to brides everywhere. We turned it into a wedding ring. Okay? This was Paul's very fundamental explanation of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And this is the way the earliest Christians lived. And do not make the mistake of thinking, well, it must have been easier for them. No. Sacrifice for others is never easy. And for the earliest of Christians, it was no different. But here's the thing. They did not just sacrifice time and comfort. They sacrificed everything. 
except for some Christians in Corinth, obviously, which is why Paul wrote this letter. Consider this observation of the early Christians from Aristides. He was a second century Athenian philosopher. He wrote an apology for Christianity. If anyone among them comes into want, while they themselves have nothing to spare, they fast for two or three days for him. In this way they can supply any poor man with the food he needs. Let that sit with you for a second. I bring extra turkeys to the food pantry in November. And I'm always really good about writing extra checks during the holidays for the poor. The early Christians were literally going without food so others could eat. Not 10%. Or 5% if it's been a bad week. Now, in light of this, we spent time talking about the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's table, remember? And the rich were eating and the poor weren't. How much more grotesque now was that, what was going on in Corinth, if this is how other Christians were living? No wonder Paul used language and blamed sickness and even dead death among the Corinthians for the way they were acting at the Lord's Supper. Something that seems, oh, whoa, how horrible is that? we say now, 2,000 years later, because we don't understand what was going on. But it sort of makes more sense. That they're acting so spiritual and wonderful Christians, and they're not even sharing food at the very communion table. Another historian points out that the pagan emperor Julian, one of the Roman emperors, he complained that the Christians had developed a massive social welfare system with which the pagan empire could not compete because the pagan worldview did not inspire people as the Christian worldview did to serve and sacrifice for the common good. Think about that. A pagan empire, emperor, furious at the Christian community because their worldview inspired people to serve and sacrifice for the common good. I know very little communities of Christians in America that would ever be accused of that. Wouldn't it be awesome if we were accused of inspiring people to serve and sacrifice for the common good? The emperor, Julian, hated the Christians. This is his own words, but he obviously was jealous of them too. This is his own words in a letter he wrote. This is a pagan emperor. So those of us that get suspicious of Christian historians, so th this, is not, this is just a pagan emperor that hated Christians. Here's what he wrote about observing Christians. He said, I think that when the poor happen to be neglected and overlooked by pagan priests, the impious Galileans, that's his derogatory term for Christians, observed this and devoted themselves to benevolence. They support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. Now let's fast forward 2,000 years to the most Christian nation on earth. <coughs> well, we Christians have put the care of the poor into the government's hands. And wait, many of us Christians complain that our taxes get used to help the poor. Many Christian voices and many Christian people in this country complain 
and argue and vote against social services when our forefathers created social services. <clears throat> and they weren't doing it, by the way, with tax money. And they paid their taxes. Rome was excellent at getting their taxes. They created social services out of what money they had left and out of deep sacrifice, even if it meant going without food for two or three days. I told you this would piss everyone off. Along with the poor, they also took care of widows and children. See, children at that time were not like children today. Children at that time, if, if they weren't aborted and they weren't left to die on the side of the road as babies, they were just exploited. They were the lowest part of society and they were just exploited in the Roman Empire. Which, by the way, if your mind's already running ahead, now you can think, oh, that's why Paul was really against certain other behaviors at that time because it was always being directed in exploiting children. Oh, that, that makes sense. Some historians argue that the early Christians created childhood because they were the ones who protected children and said, no, be children, the way Jesus said, come on, let the children come into the world. They would not allow the kids to be exploited. By 250 A.D., the church in Rome had 1,500 widows and distressed persons under its care. And by 400 A.D., Constantinople had over 3,000 widows on its payroll. Tertullian captured the reality of the early Christians most famously when he wrote, if any of us are familiar with this quote, They are used to feed and bury the poor for boys and girls without means and without parents to help them, for shipwrecked sailors, for those doing forced labor in the mines or banished on islands or in prison. But even such acts of great love set a stain on us in the eyes of some people. Look, they say, how they love each other. See how ready they are to die for one another. I, I was... I, this has happened for two years to me, but this last two weeks was the worst as I was preparing for the sermon realizing there is no one in the world who would say about David Gentleman, look how ready he is to die for his love. And that's for my loved ones. <clears throat> I'm so glad he has holes in his hands that hide mountains of sin. And see, here's the thing. Die they did. The Roman Empire was hit by two massive plagues. One in 165 AD and the other in 250 AD. Scholars estimate that during both of those plagues, up to a quarter of the population died. At the height of the second epi epidemic, in, the, in Rome alone, thousands were dying daily, daily. All right? Dionysus, the Bishop of Alexandria, during the plague of 250, observed the Christian behavior at this time. They showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ, and with them even departed this life. They weren't all miraculously protected from the disease that they were treating people for. Many of them caught it and died too. 
the heathens behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treating unburied corpses as dirt. And if you think that's an exaggeration, just Google pictures from West Africa right now. Historians say that Christians buried the dead during the plagues, and they showed great tendency by first washing their bodies and wrapping them in grave clothes. Some of us have a friend who was criticized and doubted, even by some Christians, for going to West Africa to help people with Ebola. Perhaps he understood the heart of Christianity better than his critics. And here in our own country, many voices right now are rising with anger, even Christian voices, about why the government and CDC are not doing more to protect us from the disease. But our forefathers were literally dying just to bring comfort to those who were dying alone. And they were doing it without any knowledge or equipment or medicines. Just love. Seek not your own good, but that of the other, St. Paul said in the middle of this incredibly powerful and convicting letter. And now he turns in another direction, and he says it this way. Pursue love. The early Christian witness, and there are so many other examples we could have looked at, while it is convicting, it should not discourage us. For here's the thing. They were people just like you and I. With the same fears and limitations. And more importantly, loved by the same God. And loved the same by that God. That same God who gave them the grace to love like Him. And live like that. Offers that same grace to us daily. I think we just need to start changing our minds about what we want. Or actually, that song that was such divine serendipity that they, they didn't have a special today and they decided five minutes before church they were going to do that special. You know what I think it is? We lack belief. I know I do. I won't accuse you of lacking belief for how you live your life, but I'll accuse myself. You see, in that verse it said, In your love I find release, a haven for my unbelief. Take my life and let it be a living prayer, my Lord, to thee. I, I'm finding, I, I don't believe in God's love. I want to. Oh, I believe in part of it. I believe in his love for me. That he loved me so much he died for me. But as I have studied Corinthians now for two years and have tried to share what I'm finding there with all of you, I'm realizing I don't believe in love. That's why I don't live it. There is nothing but release to be found in loving like God loves. And yet we continue to lie to ourselves and fool ourselves and use Christian language and Christian words that belief is something else. That we can turn our backs on our enemies. That we can turn our backs on others. 
and we find Christian language to support all of those views. Well, there are plenty of people in Corinth that thought that too, which is why Paul wrote this letter. But across the Christian world, at that time, they knew nothing of this kind of faith that I have, which has nothing to do with love. But I am so thankful God forgives and every day offers us a new step, a new opportunity to step toward Him. So I think we have to change our minds about what we want, about what we believe. Do we believe in God's love or not? Instead of holding on to the limits of fear and closed-minded selfishness, we can choose His love, which opens our horizons to endless possibilities of living great, of living witness, of living love. As Witherington wrote, it has been said that we have become like those we admire. <clears throat> the early Christians who saw in this passage a portrait of Christ were not wrong. Here is a description of how Christianity, of how Christians may imitate Christ. For when Christians love, they come closest to approximating the eschatological state in the character of Jesus Christ. Might God help us all. Might God help us all. Mm -hmm.